Welcome to Women Leading the Way Radio Show, where each time you'll hear from successful women CEOs, executives, and professionals, where we'll discover how they do what they do to be successful in business. We'll be interviewing women who have overcome big challenges, women who have incredible stories of lessons learned in dealing with adversity. We'll even interview women who have started and grown successful organizations and women who are C-level executives with unique talents and positions. Our goal is to bring successful businesswomen together to share how they're leading the way in business today. Good morning and welcome to Woman Lead Radio brought to you by Connected Women of Influence. I'm Melissa Washington, your host of Women Veterans in Business. Our show topic today is Women Veterans in Business, How They Can Mitigate Legal Risk When Starting, Growing, and Running a Business. And our leading lady today is Attorney Amy McDougall, Air Force veteran and president of Clear Resources. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Thank you so much. I'm honored and excited to be here to be your first guest of 2023. Yes, thank you. And and hey, and, and thank you for your service and, and thank you for your being here today. Um, so before we get into talking about, you know, you starting your business and growing your business and um, all the great things you do with your business, tell us a little bit about time um, you were you're in the Air Force and just just share with everyone listening um, what you did in, in the Air Force. You don't have to go through everything, but just, you know, just a quick snapshot of your time in the Air Force. Sure. As I was finishing law school, you know, I had the option of looking at law firms and public sector positions and My grandfather had been career Air Force and retired as a maintenance officer. He actually began in the Army Air Corps before the Air Force was even really born. And then my father had served a few years during Vietnam as a medical officer. Uh, He was treating uh, active duty members who were coming back with various addictions to substances. And, And so I was kind of poised to be a third generation you know, Air Force officer, and I was looking at my options, and I really wanted to get my feet wet as far as experience and leadership, uh, and the Air Force offered all of that. So I pursued a commission in the Air Force as a Judge Advocate General, a JAG, as soon as I left law school, and that's how my journey began. Well, it's interesting. So you you joined after you got your degree, because a lot of people joined the military to get their education, but you already had you had your education and then joined the military. That's right. There is that option if you're Air Force ROTC for an educational delay to do law school and have the Air Force pay for that. And a lot of my peers, at the same time I was commissioned, had participated in in that program. Another one actually coming out of, of my law school at Vanderbilt was graduating having been Air Force ROTC and on educational delay for law school. But I took a direct commission, so you can apply for to go right in after law school. You don't have the benefit of them paying your tuition that way, but it's definitely a way to to enter. Absolutely, absolutely. So with that too, so tell us, um, you know, anything. What stands out when you during your time in the military? So when I went on active duty, uh, I get a great first assignment at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia and, you know, went right into the base level legal office there. We also had Air Combat Command headquarters was there. There was a legal office at the command level. But I went into the first fighter wing as a brand-new first lieutenant and having gone to law school but not yet to the JAG school. And so I wasn't too familiar with, 
you know, Article 15 processes and the other processes that are unique to the Air Force, like courts martial. But uh, I was quickly sent, within a few months, went to the JAG school down at Maxwell Air Force Base. My initial assignment, there's basically three divisions for JAG, is claims, civil law, and military justice, which is the criminal law arm. All of the JAGs dabble some in military justice as they are assigned to prosecute courts martial, but some are, are assigned there full time. So my first assignment was actually in civil law as the chief of legalist, which I really enjoyed helping all of our uh, service members with individual legal issues. It could be a consumer issue, a lemon law issue with a car that they bought. It could be difficulty breaking a lease when they have orders to move. It could be some advice on divorce or separation or military retirement benefits. And I really enjoyed that one-to-one advising uh, with my clients in the Air Force as a young JAG. But above that was the trial experience. My first course martial I tried within weeks of landing at my first assignment, and it was a quadruple courts martial of four service members who had consumed marijuana in the dorms on base, and they had ordered delivery of food, and the person who delivered the food stopped at the at the guard shack on the way off the base and said, hey, you know, everybody back in room so-and-so is, uh, you know, smoking marijuana. And so that was my kind of first quadruple courts martial. Case, So it was a lot of prosecution at the trial level early on, and later I moved to the appellate level where I was handling courts martial on appeal. So service members get free defense counsel and free appellate counsel at every level if they're accused and then convicted of, of a crime on, for their appeal. And so I was on the government side uh, assigned to kind of help shepherd those appeals through the appellate process for service members who had been convicted. So a lot of trial and appellate experience in the law. And of course, there's a lot of compliance. There's advising general officers on ethics laws and transition to civilian employment upon retirement. So there's lots and lots of compliance in, in ethics, government ethics issues in the time that you serve as a JAG, which was a, was a natural segue for me when I began my civilian career. Absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm sure we can go on, and I'm sure you've got some great stories to share, too, um, with that. We want to keep it to talking about as far as um, uh, our, our women veterans in, in business and that, how you help. But before we get into that, um, talking about that, tell me a little bit about you. Also have, um, you also have – you've got um, your, your legal experience education, but you also have something else that's very interesting – um, and I, I don't want to go too far into it, but I just find um, that very interesting, a little bit part of, Elsa, your background. So you must be referring to my undergraduate degree. Yes. And that is, and for those of you listening, it's okay to laugh a little bit. My undergraduate degree is actually in flute performance. So yes, you heard that correctly, flute as in play in the band and play in the orchestra. And from a very young age, when I went on a field trip, to hear the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, actually, when I was seven years old, I said, that's what I want to do with my life. And from seven all the way through to about 22, I was singularly, singularly focused on being principal flutist of a major symphony orchestra and had shaped, you know, my academics around that, not giving it necessarily my full attention in high school as I really wanted to go to a conservatory of music. And so I attended Peabody Conservatory of Music where I earned a Bachelor of Music in flute performance 
However, I was extremely competitive, and also when you're that age range of 18, 19, 20, you think you know it all. You think you know better than others, and I didn't really listen to my body when I was playing a lot. So I had a lot of problems with carpal tunnel and tendonitis, and to me, you know, pain is just weakness leaving the body, and if you push yourself, your body will adapt you know, to that new level. And that's kind of the thinking that I embraced, but I really did enough damage to my hands that playing, you know, three, four, five hours a day was no longer going to be feasible. It was just going to be one or two hours a day. So I was able to complete my degree, but I needed to pivot. I needed to pivot to an entirely different career, one that I'd never, you know, thought about or contemplated or had aimed for. And that's when I was considering, that's why I considered law school. It gave me some options for a career pivot that uh, that my degree did not give me options for. My degree just means I can play the flute. It doesn't mean I can write a paper or research or think critically. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of catch-up to do uh, in law school. And it, frankly, it was just the discipline of conservatory, of committing yourself to that practice time and that self-criticism, right? When you play an instrument, you only see your professor one hour a week. The rest of the time you're practicing, you're expected to examine what you're doing and correct it on your own. There's no one there to guide you. And it was that, that kind of discipline and mindset that really helped me survive law school is, is that kind of thinking and how, how could I be doing this better or more efficiently and what am I missing here that kind of helped in law school and then, and then beyond as well in, in, into you know, trial and appellate practice as well. Well, that's pretty badass. I'm, I'm going to tell you that much. So if, <laughs> to, trans, to, to transition from that and then and what you're doing now. So talk about transition. So you, you trans, I mean, you've, you've had several different transitions, right, in your life before you even got out of the military, and then you go into a transition from the military to the civilian world. So as you're getting out of the military, what, what were you thinking you were going to do when you got out of the military? What, what was your plan? So, you know, with a law degree, it was flexible. I really was torn what area of law to really focus on. I could have continued to be a prosecutor, but frankly, some of the cases that I handled were very emotionally charged and difficult. You know, child abuse cases, child sex abuse cases, child pornography, sexual assault, murder. This is difficult to have, you know, all the time coming at you, whether it's, you know, reviewing the evidence and interviewing victims. It's very heavy. And I needed a little bit of relief from that. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, here's, here's what I enjoy doing, but I've spent so much time in the adversarial process, in trial, right, that I, I thought, what if we could just prevent some of these things from happening in the first place? So I started kind of thinking like a primary health care provider of legal health, that I would love to be part of a prevention strategy here instead of having to be at the other end and trying to clean up and mitigate the damage on the other end. And that naturally kind of drew me to compliance. And that could have been within the government or even within the commercial sector as an in-house counsel to kind of focus on, let's prevent some of these things from happening and then there's no impact in the organization that way. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed looking at how do we mitigate this risk? You know, what policy can we put in place? How can we train everyone in the company so that they know not to do this that just caused, you know, all of these issues? And so I shifted my focus when I was in-house counsel as my first civilian job to kind of that preventive law, that compliance aspect of if we just do it right on the front end, um, you know, then we won't have that impact. And looking back, I realize now it's kind of 
my core values, myself as a person that led each one of these transitions because they look like wildly different things. Maybe that I was like a wild hose that no one's holding, like a fire hose, just kind of flinging around all over the place with, with career direction and focus from a music degree to law school and serving the military as an officer and then going in-house in the commercial world and, you know, a lawyer. But it was all rooted by my own core values, what I felt was valuable, you know, service and excellence in what I did and having the integrity to do the right thing and follow the rules. Kind of those Air Force core values, they, they resonated with me when I went in, but I kind of carried them when I went out. And so then that's when I pivoted my focus to helping businesses focus on what are the legal risks that I face? What's going to bring my business down? Uh, what's going to make me less competitive in my market space? What's going to make me more competitive? What kind of core values will make me more competitive? And I so enjoyed that work that I got certified as a corporate compliance and ethics professional. And I left other companies, you know, serving them to try to launch on my own CLEAR resources, which CLEAR actually stands for Compliance, Legal, Ethics, and Risk. And when I sat down, I had letters on pieces of paper because I was trying to make some sort of acronym, right? Feels familiar, military acronym. And I was like REALC, ALERC, LARC. I'm just moving the letters all around. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it spells clear, which then just became, it was very clear to me at that moment, right? Clear resources was the direction I wanted to go and make a consulting firm, not a law firm, because law firms fundamentally, they do guide their clients on the front end. They engage in transactional advising, but a lot of them also clean up messes on, on the other end as well. And I wanted the focus to be on prevention. So I formed a consulting company, Clear Resources, in order to do that um, as, a, as a woman veteran-owned business and to make my services on prevention and legal risk mitigation and promoting strong uh, business cultures that are based on integrity as my core work. That's phenomenal. And, and you, too, you mentioned as far as like the wild hose, but it, as far as all the things you're doing, but, you know, as you look at everything you've done, I mean, it's all required some discipline, I mean, from everything you've done, right? I mean, that's some serious discipline, and um, and it makes sense for you to fall into compliance because all that is, that's right, is having that, being compliant, being disciplined, um, and, and having those um, excellent core values. Um, but real quick, we're going to take a quick moment to recognize one of our sponsors and partners. Um, Woman Lead Radio is brought to you today by Connected Women to Influence and our partner, National University. National University is proud to be one of the largest private nonprofit universities founded in 1971. The National University mission is to provide accessible, achievable higher education to adult learners. Today, National University educates students from across the U.S. and around the globe with over 170,000 alumni worldwide. Thank you for your support, National University, and to all of our sponsors and partners. Well, we're back to Women, Veterans, and Business, and with us today is Attorney Amy McDougall, and she was just sharing with us about um, her consulting company that she has, Clear Resources, and it's an acronym, um, and for those of you that um, have been in the military or know about the military, we love our acronyms, and your, your acronym is fantastic. You've got the CLEAR, the Compliance Legal Ethics and risk, and so let's talk about um, those. You know, women veterans, you know, or just anyone getting into business. What should they be thinking about um, when starting their their business when it comes to helping to prepare themselves to mitigate? I mean, the, those legal risks that could potentially happen. 
Uh, that is a million-dollar question because anyone who's starting a business is already a little bit risk tolerant, right? They have a risk appetite for starting up this new entity, for for growing this this baby, if you will, right? Creating this organization, and there's a lot to think about. Um, there's a lot to think about as far as just basic compliance, registering your business's name, making sure that you have your local business license, and making sure you have your tax ID, and there's all of those logistics right up front in just forming the company, of course. But then depending on what you're going to be doing, you really need to have an understanding of what risks to the business on, on a legal perspective. If you have if you're going to be hiring people that are minimum doing minimum wage work, you know, you need to be mindful of the wage and hour laws. Of course, that applies to any and every employer. So I always mention wage and hour because it doesn't matter how how big you are, how you pay, even one employee matters on, on the compliance scheme. And then whatever business or industry you're in matters too. Do you have product? Are there product liability issues, right? Are there export, import control issues? And as a business grows and as is as it diversifies with different product lines and different services, obviously more and more risk comes on board. But the key for the business owner is to identify what are those risks that are most likely, legal and compliance risks that are most likely to trip me up that are going to happen. They're going to happen. And uh, so I need to address them and mitigate them. And what are the risks that have the biggest impact on my organization? So if you don't have any employees, wage and hour might not be that. But if you're, consulting on a certain topical area, right? You need to think about things like your professional liability. If you give advice that might be misguided or uh, probably more probable, you give advice that isn't misguided but it's not received, right, or it's not implemented the way that you intended. There's maybe a communications difference. Having a contract, a basic contract to govern what the work is, what the deliverables might be, what the services are, that's really important for mitigating your risk. Could you do some work just based on an email describing what's needed? Sure, you can. Uh, you see this a lot in the musician gig economy. Can you, play, can you play cello at my wedding? Sure, I'll play some Bach at your wedding. But without a contract in place, the terms of payment, any sort of liability, what if the cello is laying there and someone trips over it and it's damaged? You know, one of the guests damages the cello without any sort of agreement or contract in place, it's not clear, right? And so how are you going to mitigate the risks in the business that you're doing? And the key isn't to be a subject matter expert in import export law and all of these other areas. The key is to have that red flag so that you know it's a risk area and you know to ask for some help and some guidance. You know, I know contracts, but that doesn't mean I don't have a business lawyer. I do. Someone who knows better than I do about certain provisions that I might want to change the language or add something to, right? We can't ever substitute our subject matter experts. And the other piece of this, too, is building capital. That's one challenge. I'd say it's the biggest challenge is raising capital and having those funds to start a business for women veterans. This is particularly true of women veterans of color. And part of the reason for that is that uh, veterans, women veterans, are divorced at a higher rate than their civilian counterparts. And so that can mean more single um, head of household, right? which have more demands. And then sometimes there might be issues with collecting on spousal support or child support from another parent if you have a single parent, which adds to economic challenges on top of, on top of everything else that's there, having served in the military, having less of a deep professional network. If you've been moving around, you, don't, you can't just walk to your established network for 20 years and say, hey, I'm starting this business. Can you get the word out? That's yet another challenge for women veterans. 
So in looking at all of this, it's critically important to take a look at those few legal risks or compliance risks that can tank your business. And we've seen historically that women, and I'm stereotyping here, so there's always exceptions to the rule, but women generally are less risk tolerant. They're more risk averse than men in business. And so this is kind of part of the reason why we see less white-collar crime coming from women. Yes, there was Martha Stewart and there's Theranos, you know, Elizabeth Holmes. There's some white-collar crime with women, and part of the problem is women aren't necessarily at the higher ranks in such numbers as men for white-collar crime. But part of the reason, too, is that women are more risk-averse. They want to do things correctly. And coming out of the military, this is the mindset, too. There's a rule for this. There's a policy that governs this. Let me look that up. Just like they would follow the rules on wearing their uniform and registering their cars on base and all of the other things that are required in the military, it's kind of that compliance mindset. And so as you start your business and as you run your business, it's so key for you to have an understanding of the legal risks that are the most likely to occur and have the biggest impact on your business. So you can direct modest resources to mitigate those particular risks specifically uh, to ensure the survival of and success of your business. Well, you, you bring in up some excellent, excellent points um, here. Um, so with that, if you know, I, I'm sure there's people listening like, oh, my gosh, I, I want to talk to Amy. How can, how can our listeners contact you? So my website is a great way to get in touch with me, and my website is my name, amy.mcdougall, at clearresources.com. I will add that in, when I created my logo, I doubled up the R's at the end of clear and at the beginning of resources, and it looks so good in the logo. However, uh, when it translates to my website and my email address, it, the shared R is a little bit more problematic. So there is only one R at the end of clear, and that's the R that begins resources. Uh, instead of having two R's doubled up there. So amy.mcdougall at clearresources.com is my email address, and clearresources.com is my website where you have access to a few templates and some information about risk mitigation generally. Um, the best way to kind of reach out and get in touch with me either through my webpage contact form or to email me directly uh, if, if, you know, if anyone has questions about how exactly do I go about identifying the legal risks that, that, that face my business, and then how do I prioritize them? How do I know which ones are the highest risk versus lesser risks that I might need to address? And at what point do I then need to implement a written policy, or do I just need to mark on my calendar on a recurring basis to check? I kind of monitor the status of a particular license or a registration so I um, always uh, enjoy sharing tips and pointers on, on staying in compliance with my fellow business owners. And I'm expecting to release a book in the fall. Uh, it's going to be directed at cannabis companies, but it's 420 compliance program tips for cannabis companies. But the big secret is these compliance tips are, are, are useful for any company. They don't need to be implemented just by cannabis companies. There's nothing special about a company whose product is cannabis versus a company whose product is anything else. And so there's going to be a lot of, of compliance program tips packed into that book as well that are scalable. If you're a company of five people, the book will be useful. If it's a, your company of 500 people, the book will also be useful um, for a company of really any size in any industry. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, congratulations on that. Um, so 
What do you find people when they come to you? Are they is people be more proactive, or they're coming to you when something's already happened and they need help? That is a great question, and I would say it's fifty fifty. Half of my clients have leadership that has business savvy that realizes the value of compliance, even though there's no ROI. Right? There's no tangible return on investment that's really measurable, and I make the analogy to security. So you you lock the doors of the company at night. You might have lighting in the parking lot. Sometimes there might be a guard or sometimes an armed guard if if the circumstances warrant it. But you don't then go back and say, well, how many thefts do we think we prevented from our building at night because we locked the doors and we left the parking lot? You can't measure what doesn't happen. And that's that's the challenge of compliance as well. The goal is zero misconduct, zero noncompliance, zero fraud. Right, that's the goal. And it's hard, again, it's hard to measure how much of what you put in place prevented something from happening, especially if you haven't done these things in the past and nothing has happened. But the other piece of that is the shield that being organized about this puts up, the shield for your company. So if someone comes to your company and says, hey, we think there's an issue here, your efforts on compliance matter to separate you from the misconduct. A great example I, I would give is Penn State. Everyone knows that Jerry Sandusky committed his crimes at Penn State, and Penn State is, is upwards of $285 million into penalties and fines and, you know, costs because of the association between Jerry Sandusky's crimes and the university because they didn't have a compliance program in place. They had no reporting mechanism. There was a culture there of retaliation, of perceived retaliation, so people wouldn't come forward. Once information did trickle up, there was a lack of investigation or follow-up or enforcement. But you contrast that with Ed Snowden and Ed Snowden's alleged offenses, and most Americans don't know who Ed Snowden worked for. They, they say, wasn't it the NSA? Was No, that's where the company was contracted. That's not who he worked for. He worked for Booz Allen Hamilton. And the reason why Booz Allen Hamilton remained unscathed and was not suspended or debarred from government contracting and did not have the fallout that Penn State had was that Booz Allen Hamilton had a very robust compliance and ethics program. They had trained Ed Snowden. They had evidence of that. And they had a robust code of conduct and policies that they followed up on and enforced. And so the company was able to separate itself from the misconduct of a rogue employee, right? Keep the rogue employee rogue is basically the goal of a compliance ethics program. And so half of my clients know that they need to work with someone to have a picture of legal risk and to use their resources wisely. And the other half of my clients have been told by a government enforcement agency of some kind, Department of Labor, Department of Interior, Department of Homeland Security, the EPA, Department of Justice, that they need to work with a compliance professional to, to kind of make their compliance efforts more effective, to establish a program and, and oversight of that program and direct resources towards it to prevent something like that from happening in the future. And so if, if you don't do it in advance, it's definitely going to be imposed on you later, and it's going to cost more, right, between the, dealing with the agency and the accusations and you know, the enforcement efforts, attorney's fees, and in the end, you'll end up hiring Amy or someone like Amy to uh, establish more robust risk mitigation within the company. And so it's better to just make that investment on the front end. Um, but it is half and half for my clients. Half come to me uh, begrudgingly and regretfully, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the other half come with hope 
that their efforts would be recognized, you know, in the event that an enforcement effort were made. Again, it could be a wage and hour desk audit, an OFCCP audit. It could be the contracting officer of an agency and, and you're a prime or a subcontractor and they think that you did X, Y, Z, whether it's gratuities or violation of Fly American or Buy American, it could be anything. But the more prepared you are to articulate your core values and your position on legal risk mitigation and your, your tangible efforts to do the right thing and comply with contract terms and with the law, it puts you in the best position to remain as unscathed as you possibly can in those circumstances. Wow, that's – thank you so much. I, I'm sure we can go another half hour, and believe it or not, our, our time's it's, – it's coming to an end. And, and again, I know you, you shared your information um, there with everyone if they wanted to reach out to you to, to talk to you um, further about um, all the great services that you're providing. Um, so just really quickly, one quick thing, what would you share to anyone that's getting ready to transition out of the military? What would be your one quick piece of advice? I would say close your eyes and really explore what's truly important to you, your values, and pivot to something and pivot to a company that is consistent with your values. How are you going to know that? If they're publicly traded, look up their code of conduct. You know, look them up on the Internet to see on, on, on Glassdoor and some of the other websites to see what people are saying about the company because it's really difficult when you're coming out of the military to find an organization that matches the values that you've held, right? And that's what mm-hmm. we miss about, about our colleagues and in the military is working towards a common mission. Even in one company, a bunch of different people can have different missions that they're on. It's not necessarily the same. So really search for landing in a place that matches your personal core values as closely as possible. Because even if your work is challenging or it's a little different than you used to do, if you're united in the values of that organization, you will succeed. Great, great advice. Thank you so much, Amy. Well, that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for being our leading lady today, Amy McDougall, and a special thanks to all our listeners, both in the U.S. and internationally, as we are an international show. After our show today, you can listen to Woman Lead Radio on all subscription podcasts, specifically Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. We are expanding quickly to a daily radio show and podcast, so for now we'll be back again for another live Woman Lead Radio on Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. Oh, and it's been my sincere pleasure to be your host today. Thank you for listening, and I truly hope you have a great week. Women Leading the Way is produced by Connected Women of Influence, the premier private membership organization where like-focused, business-to-business executive and professional women connect, collaborate, and cultivate a vast network of high-level affiliations, resources, and professional relationships. For more information about Connected Women of Influence, please visit our website at connectedwomenofinfluence.com.